Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Tongva people in California just reacquired a piece of their ancestral land in Los Angeles. Another California tribe, the Esalen, also regained ownership of more than a thousand acres of land for conservation. Growing awareness of the importance of ancestral tribal land is prompting donations by governments and individual landowners. We'll talk more about tribes welcoming new land donations right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Daniel Montano in for Antonia Gonzalez. The vice chair of the board that oversees the University of Minnesota system apologized after asking if whether one of the higher education institutions has become too diverse. Michigan Public Radio reports Steve Swigum posed the question at a Board of Regents meeting. He was referring to the U of M Morris campus that once housed an Indian boarding school. Qualified Native students can attend the college tuition-free. Native students are by far the largest minority group enrolled. During the meeting, Swigum said he'd gotten letters from friends whose children chose different schools because, in his words, they didn't feel comfortable there. White students make up about 54% of the college population. That number is down slightly from five years ago. Almost a third of the total enrolled students identify as Native. Astronaut Nicole Mann says she hopes to be an inspiration as the first Native woman to fly into space. Mann, who is Wailaki from the Round Valley Indian tribes, fielded questions from Native media outlets and Native children while aboard the International Space Station on Wednesday. Mann launched on October 5th, serving as mission commander on NASA's SpaceX Crew-5 mission, aboard the Dragon-style aircraft named Endurance. Associated Press aerospace writer Marsha Dunn asked man questions submitted from various native media outlets and tribal schools. The questions covered everything from her view of Earth to how tribal wisdom, traditions, and family advice played a role in her career. She said her accomplishment as the first native woman in space is part of a larger legacy of native people helping advance the aerospace industry. It makes me feel very proud. It makes me proud to be able to follow in the footsteps of those trailblazers, of those other Native Americans and Native American women that have been involved in aerospace industry and in engineering. There is a long line of people that broke down barriers uh, throughout the years to create these opportunities. And I feel grateful to be able to participate and represent on board the International Space Station. And I really hope to uh, continue that inspiration to other young children around the world. NASA says the crew's mission will last five months and includes hundreds of scientific experiments. The whole interview can be viewed on NASA's YouTube channel. Native leaders in Texas are fighting renewed calls to build two liquefied natural gas export terminals on sacred tribal land. The Texas Tribune reports Juan Mancias, chair of the Carrizo Comacruto tribe, has been fighting LNG on a global scale for the last year and has had many victories in that battle. But the war in Ukraine is driving demand for LNG and has reinvigorated the search for funding to build a gas pipeline and two new terminals on a site in the Rio Grande River Delta on the Gulf Coast. The area is integral to the tribe's creation beliefs where they say the first woman was born. The terminals could be massive structures that liquefy natural gas export to global markets. The Sierra Club says they would produce as much carbon as more than 40 million cars a year. 
Local politicians expressed support for the terminals, including U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, because of the potential economic benefit they could bring to the area. The University of Kansas issued an apology and restarted repatriation efforts after Native American ancestors were found as part of the university's museum collection. The university said a recent redisclosure identified sacred objects, funerary items, and more, along with the culturally unidentified individual remains. The school said they had already tried to repatriate the items, but never completed the process. KU says it will establish a Native Advisory Committee and consult directly with tribal nations and provide new facilities for the Indigenous Studies Program and support for students, staff, and faculty. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean and Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support for the renovated Anchorage Marriott downtown, one block from the Denina Convention Center, close to restaurants and shopping. Reservations are being taken at 800-228-9290. A special rate is available for those attending AFN. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The history of Native land is often a story of colonial violence, broken treaties, destructive, one-side policies. Many tribes have lost access to some of their most sacred ancestral lands. But social reckoning and growing awareness of past injustices are prompting land donation to tribes by both individuals and governments. Some tribes are getting land back in partnership with local governments and environmental groups. The Esalen tribe in California are now stewards of a thousand acres of donated land. The state-recognized Tongva tribe was made landless by colonization in California, but a private landowner just donated an acre of land in Los Angeles that will be the site of tribal ceremonies and other gatherings. We talked earlier with Wallace Cleves. He's Tongva and the president of a native-led organization that now oversees the donated land. Cleves is among those who led the way for the historic land acquisition and is hopeful about more similar land back initiatives. Here's a piece of our conversation. I've been working on these sorts of issues for 30 years now. And back then, I mean, it was such a struggle to even get access. Places that were, you know, on a historical register as having great importance to our community. The change that's happened really just within the last 10 years with kind of awareness of these issues and the importance and certainly the land back movement itself has just utterly transformed the landscape here. And, and I'm very hopeful that this will, like I said, be just the first opportunity for our community and for many of the other communities. I know the other non-federally recognized tribes in the area are working on their own initiatives. I've been supporting those as well. Uh, and we're in contact with a number of those. And, and I know it's happening all over the country. And I really hope it expands. I hope that um, Los Angeles is sort of on the forefront on this in some ways um, and that we'll see more of it happening here and that, that it will spread because uh, it's really an amazing opportunity. And just the 
the joy that I see from our community at having a place that we can call our own, um, seeing them come to the land and feel, you know, uh, people have called it, you know, like a green cathedral. It's like we have our own place where we can we can celebrate and be together. I mean, and they just smile and people have, you know, cried. I get emotional even thinking about it myself. And two of our really important elders, um, Barbara Drake and Julia Bogany, uh, went on to the ancestors over the last few years when it's been really hard for us to gather because of the pandemic. And they both asked me to be involved in this and were really involved in the early stages of this. And so it's a part of a legacy for them as well. And I think that will be the case for a lot of communities. And what are your long-term plans for the property then? Um, it's mostly going to be a place for, for our community to gather, uh, to hold ceremony. Uh, we have quarterly ceremonies that we've we've been holding, but we always have to hold them at a place that's owned by, by some other entity, a university, uh, the parks, some, some other facility. And we're always limited in how we can perform our ceremonies. Sometimes we can't burn uh, our sage, which is, you know, actually, it is actually a part of our, you know, ancient traditions. We also will be having uh, workshops for language, uh, cultural competency, for regalia making. Um, we'll be hosting kind of community gatherings to to get people together to talk about important issues and to be able to come together in a place that's ours, uh, which which we really haven't been able to do. We have uh, an artist in residence, a community member who's an artist in residence on, on the place. So we're, we're, we're housing somebody there uh, currently who's also caretaking it. Uh, and we hope to have more of that. And uh, we, we hope that this is only the first, that there will be more land return and that we'll have other places that we can have for our community, that we can have a more uh, public and outward facing space and also space where we can house community members because uh, property values in L.A. are so incredible. We're losing community members who are having to move out of their traditional territory because uh, they can't afford to live here anymore. So it's almost kind of a, a slow genocide in that we're we're having our community forced out of our traditional area once again. That was Wallace Cleves, president of the Tongva Tarahat Pahava Land Conservation. We're talking more this hour about land donations. Has your tribe accepted any donations of land? You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Speaking with us next in Little Canada, Minnesota is Chris Stainbrook. He's the president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation, and he's Lakota. Chris, welcome back to NAC. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me on. Chris, today's show and this whole idea of people donating land to tribes, it kind of flies in the face of contemporary perspectives in which we more often hear of Native lands being taken, not donated. Is this a growing trend? And why would a person or government choose to donate land to a tribe? Well, I think it's um, a growing trend, but you but you end up separating out um, different pieces of Indian land. So um, the focus of our foundation is largely on reservation land that was alienated um, and those sacred sites and cultural sites outside of the reservations. Um, we focus by and large on working directly with the tribes and and have had some projects that are off reservation with uh, tribes recovering their their ancient lands, their homelands, and I think it's it's been raising, I think the um, awareness by local and state governments as well as the federal government 
that this can be done and it's not it's not some big threatening uh movement that's going to undo America as it were um and I think that's you see people with a lot more comfort around the tribes and the discussions than was as as your your recording suggests ten years ago you didn't see this much kind of interest in at the at the government level mm-hmm. so i think I think that's you're seeing it's not as threatening as everyone thought it would be. Well, I found it really interesting talking with Wallace Cleves earlier that it's actually, it was a family that, that owned that land. It was about an acre in what's now Burbank, California, and uh, there was a house on it, and um, this person, the, the grandparents had passed away. The granddaughter inherited the land. It was worth more than a million dollars, and then she just felt it was the right thing to do to donate it to this land conservancy Um so it's just it's really fascinating to hear stories like that and and why you know what what motivates people you know individuals like that to to take land that's worth a lot of money and just donate it to a tribal organization like that well i think I think a fair bit of it is the family history and coming to recognition of of how Indian land played in their family history. And the land that they were on um, was once held by a tribe. And so I think there's this recognition of um, where did their basic family wealth come from? And a lot of it has to do with the land. And and so it, it generates that kind of family support for um, let's do the right thing. Um, now... I have to tell you, we have a lot of, we probably get, I don't know, maybe three to four inquiries a month about um, how do they give land to the tribes, and oftentimes um, there are lands that the tribes really can't manage. They're too far from a reservation, um, and we help them find other ways to do donations that will benefit the tribes. So I think there's... um, there's a sense of are we really going to use this land productively or would it be better returned to the tribes? And I think that's it's that family history that kind of drives that. And the younger generation um, sees it as the right thing to do, and I think that's that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting interesting trend. And uh, you know, you mentioned some of these lands, uh, they might be far away from uh, from the base, the home base of a tribal community. And also there's there's the challenge of, of managing these lands after they're donated and a tribe acquires them, and they might not necessarily have the capacity to do that. So I would imagine that could maybe make a tribe apprehensive about accepting a donation. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's generally, they're not going to be able to put the land in tribal jurisdiction or trust status with the federal government. And so taxes will also roll up on those donations um, unless it's going to a nonprofit. Most states have the ability to waive the taxes if if a nonprofit has it. But um, that becomes a cost. And, it, and it, you know, again, if they can't really manage the land from a distance, then they get pretty skeptical about the ownership. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, the trust status issue, because as I understand it, you know, especially there in California, some of these tribes who lack federal recognition, um, which might actually enable them to acquire land more easily, they actually choose not to seek federal recognition because they don't want their lands held in trust by DOI. And they argue that they'll have more ownership, more control if the land is not held in trust. And and that, again, it kind of contradicts the view of many federally recognized tribes who generally prefer land held in trust. And what's your thought on that, Chris? Is it a smart decision to forego the path to federal recognition and trust land for some of these groups? Well, I think it, but it leaves it in state and county jurisdiction, and I think that's that's why a lot of the federally recognized tribes don't want to do it, is they want full jurisdiction over the property. Now, I'll tell you that Indian Land Tenure Foundation would prefer that we develop a native national land status, which would um, be similar to some of the First Nations in in Canada, where the tribe has total, basically total ownership of the property, including the the underlying jurisdiction, um, and okay. not have to put it in not have to put it into federal trust land. Chris, we're gonna have to take a break here, but when we come back, I want to talk more about that and learn more about this this new model that you propose as an alternative way for tribal nations to hold land. So, folks, if you've got a question or if you've got a comment, we are talking about land today on Native America Calling, and specifically um, certain tribal groups, communities who have received land donations in recent years. One eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. That's the number to call. We'll be right back. A new movie set in the Canadian Arctic is a new take on the aliens versus indigenous peoples genre. Slashback pits a group of Inuit teenagers against a mysterious force that inhabits the bodies of people and animals. The film features a mainly indigenous cast and crew. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day, on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about land donations. Is your tribe currently acquiring land by donation, by purchase, or some other means? Tell us about it. There's still time to call 1-800-996-2848. We're just getting our conversation started. So once again, that number is 1-800-99-NATIVE. We are speaking with Chris Stainbrook of Indian Land Tenure Foundation. Chris, before we took our break, you were talking about a, a new proposed way of, of land status uh, for Native tribes here in the U.S., similar to what they have up in Canada. Could you give us a little bit more details? What, what exactly would that look like, and, and how could that be made possible? Well, I think it could be made possible, um, but it will take some amount of political movement because the uh, I mean, the federal government tends to be kind of paternalistic when it comes to Indian people, and they they enjoy the trust relationship, I think, 
um, more than the tribes do necessarily. The getting to the point, if you're and and the foundation is clearly about tribal sovereignty, and if you want to be a sovereign nation, shouldn't you have complete jurisdiction under on, under your land and the ability to um, function like a, a sovereign nation? Um, and that's that's the point of having native national land is that. In fact, you have full control. I mean, nothing says sovereignty like asking the secretary for permission, right? I mean, that's... (laughs) Sad but true. I mean, (laughs) well, and that's that's the underlying issue is are we sovereign nations? And and that's that's an issue. That's also one of the things about... Um, donations from either governmental entities or or even from private folks who have um, placed some restrictions on the lands. Oftentimes we see these donations made with um, conservation easements on those or some type of development easement and restricts how the land can be used going forward. And, and from our perspective, that just... Um, winnows away at the sovereignty of the tribes. Chris, we've got a caller right now, um, Andrew, listening on KISU in Pocatello, Idaho. And I think he's he's interested in learning more about possible restrictions on donated land. Andrew, hello, and thanks for calling in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're actually just starting to kind of get into that topic. I was, I was curious about, you know, what are some of the most common restrictions donors uh, try to place on um, these gifts, um, you know, if they're open to negotiation or, or if they kind of, as you speak with them, they kind of understand that, you know, uh, tribal sovereignty means that if this is your land and it's being given to you, you should have jurisdiction over it. Um, I, I kind of feel like if people are still giving the land back with certain restrictions on it, it's not really full recognition that it's tribal land. It's kind of like you said, it eats away at that uh that sovereignty. So, so in talking with these donors, have you found that they're open to this dialogue? That they kind of come to this um, understanding? Or are they pretty adamant about, you know, it should be conservation, it should not be developed, uh, we don't want housing on there? Um, yeah, i just kind of curious to hear more about that. Thanks. Andrew, thanks for calling in. And, and Chris, if you could elaborate on that, Andrew asks about more specifics on these restrictions. I know you mentioned easements and then also yeah, this whole idea of negotiating perhaps with these donors in terms of, of what the land, so everybody kind of gets their, sees their mission follow through, both the donor and, uh, and the tribe or the organization itself. What's your thought on that, Chris? Well, I mean, we see um, situations that range across a pretty wide, um, I guess, set of aspects to it. There are some donors who've already sold like conservation easements and or development rights, and so therefore that that to them is a done deal and and then they're giving the land to the tribe. I think it becomes inherent on the tribes to say, "Do we really want this with these conditions on it?" and some tribes won't take it, some tribes see it as um not that different from how they would look at the land and and actually treat the land anyway and so they're fine with it but um and it all depends on when the person who's donating the land comes to you have they you know 
thought through how this is going to be. What are their feelings around that land? Are they um, anxious to have it restricted land um, for conservation purposes or something else? And if you can have that conversation and have have the conversation early on, it really helps smooth the process out and and gets both the the donor and the post prospective tribe um, to be able to sit down at the table and and work it out. Well, Chris, thanks for for that information and again explaining uh, some of the efforts and and some of the projects that you folks have underway there at Indian Land Tenure Foundation. Listeners, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. If you've got a question or a comment on today's show about land donations occurring throughout Native America, our next guest is speaking with us in Anchorage, Alaska. Hillary Rennick is co-founder of the California Indian Land Institute. She's an enrolled member of the Sherwood Valley Band of Pomo Indians and a descendant of the Hopland, Chanel, Noyo River, and Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone communities. Hillary, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me on. I'm doing wonderful, Hillary. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, you're part of a group that harvests food and collects materials along the Mendocino County coastline in Northern California. I, I read an article from a few years ago. You describe yourselves as guerrilla gatherers. Why is that? And how does that all play into this whole issue of land donation and land status in Native America? Right. Yeah. So. Um, I guess first and foremost is access, um, you know, um, even with the land back, you know, hashtag, um, just, you know, traditional foods and our activities that are so fundamental of who we are on this landscape, access, right? We, we need access to be able to do our traditional foods, to be able to do our traditional activities, to to make the baskets that the that you know define who we are and and that you know to to make for our families and and so in places like california you know um our our tribal lands that we have are are so small and at, at, you know with at no fault of our own and so access um was has been our you know number one issue and so gorilla gatherers you know so um you know, a lot of our medicines and, and our everything that we need, our foods are always on the other side of a fence. <laughs> so, you know, just finding ourselves, you know, climbing the fence and going through a gate, um, this kind of became a, a play on words, you know. Um, and, of course, um, trying to help our, our elders um, in, you know, in nursing homes and, and trying to get our traditional foods um, and, you know, helping people with palliative care. Um, just, you know, uh, quote unquote, breaking the law, right? Just, just trying to um, provide the nourishment that they need. So Hillary, I applaud uh, the passion and conviction of you and, um, and your peers that, that, that take on this risk. I mean, you crawl under fences, you scale walls, you do whatever it takes, and, um, and you face jail time, you, you face fines, you face uh, prosecution. I mean, some people might ask, is, is it worth it, Hillary, to take that risk? Absolutely. Um, for, for medicine, for our foods, for, you know, um, just to get, to get acorns. Right now it's acorn season, <laughs> you know, just to get our basket, you know, materials. 
and um, to be able to show our, our children and, and our nieces and nephews, um, you know, how to gather and, and the things that, that are so important of, of who we are as people. And the irony in it is, you know, um, our baskets are, you know, in the Smithsonian Institute and, and all these museums around the world. And um, the materials to get them are often on the other side of a fence. Mm, okay. Well, here, really, I know this issue is personal for you and uh, your family, the Rennick family had land that was sold by the federal government, geez, like well over 150 years ago. And um, so this this is obviously deeply, deeply personal. And, and tell us a little bit more about uh, your family's history with the land there. And ultimately, um, you've now established a, a land trust as well. So please tell us more. Right. So um, a, a couple of us got together this this last year and um, we, we did a couple things. First, we, we established the California Indian Land Institute and uh, we, we formed this, this nonprofit and we started with 160 acres, um, a, a land donation. Um, and um, which is a charity in, in the land goes, you know, into um, is, um, you know, taxed under a, it's under a welfare exemption. So it's you know, land in California, just so you know, is incredibly expensive. And so even um, the Indian land buyback program pulled out for the most part of in California and said that they could not even afford to buy land back for some of the tribes in California, and they, the money would go farther working in other regions. And so um, just, you know, it, it's, again, at no fault of our own, just like in many other places, right, um, the, the Native Hawaiians, you know, California Indians, and, and um, other tribal people that, that live in places that, you know, have exorbitant, you know, <laughs> this large wealth. Um, it's so expensive to live in our homeland. Um, so, uh, you know, it just ha happened to be a, a, some ladies that are, you know, tied to this landscape that is so precious. And we decided that we needed to take action amongst ourselves and, um, you know, really live, <laughs> live it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, um, just really trying to, um, you know, uh, take our traditional foods network across the state um, from, you know, the top of the state into Talawa country down to Chimawavis and work with landowners, whether or not it's um, a land transfer or even conservation easements, just to try to get uh, folks on the land doing workshops and food sovereignty and access and reinstate our trade networks across um, our traditional homelands. Well, I, I want to learn more about this land trust, but before we do, we have another caller on the line, Emery, listening in Colorado on KSUT, U, UT, excuse me, KSUT. Emery, hello, you're on Native America Calling. Hi, Sean, thank you for taking my call. You bet, Emery. So I just wanted to um, make a comment about um, your topic today about land donation for um, Native Americans. Um, um, like I had um, said um, in the initial call, I've got a 
um, nine-acre property that I bought a couple of years ago, and it's been my intent to um, do what you're talking about, um, donating land back to the tribe. Um, unfortunately, I'm from the New Mexico, Arizona tribes of the Zuni and Hopi and Tewa, and so that's an issue as far as having land in Colorado of how to do that, and so that's something that I would have to look into. But um, again, my intent has always been to bring back indigenous um, um, raising crops, animals, um, and just getting back to the land and doing that. But as far as um, doing it on land ownership, you know, land that you truly own yourself, um, rather than federal trust status or anything like that, and just to get back, um, um, get back to the people. Emery, thanks for calling in. Uh, nine acres interested in, in donating these lands. And Hillary, I, I want to have you um, talk to talk about this because I know that um, you've done some work with BIA, and I know that you mentioned to our producers that sometimes people will contact BIA and they'll want to donate land, but they don't actually have the framework. BIA doesn't have the framework in place to actually accept those lands. And then we heard Chris earlier talking about some of the challenges with regard to, well, maybe the land isn't really quite useful for a tribe or it's in the wrong location or something like that. So, and here, Emery out of state, he's in Colorado and he's interested in donating land to, to tribes in New Mexico and Arizona. Do you ever um, have people from out of California that approach you in your organization interested in donating lands, but they're not in California? Um, I have not had that, that issue yet. Um, I know when I worked uh, previously for BIA in California, we have had, um, you know, donors call and, um, you know, wanting to, quote, unquote, um, give the land back to the Indians um, uh, without specificity, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we told them that uh, at the time, and I didn't work in realty, I worked with Fida Trust. Um, that, you know, the action did begin with the tribes. So the tribes themselves would purchase the, the land normally in fee simple absolute and then start that process themselves. Okay. And so it usually wasn't the government itself that would start that process um, at that time. Hillary, what advice would you have to someone like Emery interested in donating lands, maybe not sure how to approach a tribe or just where do they start? I would definitely. So he was talking that um, I wasn't sure that he was um, interested, like um, in in the, did he say Pueblo Tiwa? Um, that that's what he, he saw or he was Pablo Tila. Uh, it sounds like he's, he lives in Colorado. He has land in Colorado and he's in, apparently these are lands that are in, indigenous to, to tribal groups, Pueblo groups, uh, in New Mexico and Arizona. So he, he wants to donate the land to those groups, but they're, they're not in Colorado. They currently don't have lands in Colorado. Oh, I think so he's, he's, I, I wouldn't, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't see that as a barrier at all, you know? So our, our cultural barriers, I mean, our cultural, you know, borders are don't are defined by the, the, you know, political borders of today. So, I mean, you know, there's land trusts all over. The churches have trusts, right? So that's another um, something else for, for another conversation, the whole churches um, as landholders. But, 
you know, I would definitely call, you know, the tribes themselves. Um, and there's, there's tribes that could help um, or folks that could help. Um, I would even say, like Emory could, I mean, I'm, I I always get into, um, you know, advocacy for, for people, which I don't know if that's a good thing, but I could help people. Um, definitely, like, I would just cold call the, the local tribes and, and or um, environmental organizations if he wants to do, like, farming on the land, or um, there's so many different ways that he could, you know, donate his land to see what he wants on it, right? Um we are listening to Hillary Rennick. She's the co-founder of the California Indian Land Institute. Folks, if you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you've got a question, anything related to land donations, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know 1 in 10 people will have a seizure and 1 in 26 will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, unprovoked seizures. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Visit epilepsy.com slash first aid to learn about seizure first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the process of getting land back through donations. There's a lot for tribes to consider when taking possession of their ancestral land. They have to think about putting it into trust and what it takes to maintain the land. So please join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That number is 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest is speaking with us from Anchorage, Alaska as well, David Whedon. He's a tribal council member and the tribal historic preservation officer for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, a chairman of the Mashpee Board of Selectmen and a Cape Cod Commission member. He's Wampanoag. David, welcome to Native America Calling. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well, David. Uh, great to hear your voice. And uh, tell us more. The Mashpee Wampanoag started a, a native land conservancy, and it's uh, the first land conservation group east of the Mississippi, as I understand it. What was the motivation? For a long time, the tribe's been trying to um, protect the land. Uh, for folks that aren't familiar with Mashpee, we're located on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a tourist destination and you know Mashpee as a township has had uh, has a very unique history um, being in the east we have a lot of documentation on the tribes uh, relationship and uh, the process of which colonization has taken place uh, out there in our area we uh, there's a lot of written material uh, in archives and things on, on that historical past and you know, we've always fought for the land and uh, tried to exist, and that's become challenging. You know, land was primary issue um, throughout our history as uh, land grabs uh, with the effects of colonization, and that's been the biggest detriment to the tribe um, existing as a tribal community, you know, and exercising our Aboriginal rights and ways of life. Uh, so. As a result of that, uh, development started to really pick up in the 
50s and 60s and where large land grabs were um, developers were coming in and purchasing huge tracts of land. Uh, a lot of the land was held by tribe, tribal members that uh, were land rich and money poor, um, couldn't afford to keep up with the taxes as they aggressively increased as the ch town grew. Um, we lost control of the town and uh, kind of the demographics of the chain, tri tribal population started to shift where we became outnumbered in the township. Um, the entirety of the town was supposed to be in um, uh, perpetuity held in common by the tribal membership. If you refer to the original title and deed that was uh, reaffirmed through the colonial court system back in the 70, early 1700s. Um, so as a result of that, you know, with the increased development, uh, there was huge tracts of land developed by um, private developers to where, you know, a lot of our ancestral habitation areas and resource areas that we uh, have relied on for centuries uh, and thousands of years even uh, were becoming impacted and water quality was uh, started to become an issue with um, those environments thriving and sustaining us. And, and, and so we fought for first for land and lost the case in 76. That changed our direction to fight for federal recognition. We got federal recognized in 2007. It took over 31 years to, to, to get federal recognized. Um, and then in 2015, we uh, were granted land into trust. Um, over that time period of fighting for federal recognition, a lot of the land uh, was aggressively developed uh, by the town permitting of projects, and there wasn't a lot of land to go after for uh, to seek to be put into land and to trust on behalf of the tribe. Uh, mm -hmm. There's not a lot of lot, large land tracts left. So uh, as a result of that, you know, Ramona Peters uh, created the Native Land Conservancy and, you know, started looking at um, – there's a lot of support for uh, tribes to uh, – there's people that look favorably upon the tribe and, and trying to get land back, and but sometimes they're skeptical, skeptical about giving the land to the tribe um, for various reasons. So she saw fit to you know preserve and protect the land, um, no matter what, to create this native land conservancy, um, and and that was established in uh, 2012 um, as a 501c3 nonprofit. And since they've acquired a significant amount of land and also uh, funding uh, to pursue the efforts, their unique thing about their um, taking land into uh, conservation is that they, most every parcel that they take into con conservatorship, they have a, a cultural respect agreement that they created, and it allows for tribal members to go on the land and then actually. Um, practice ceremony, you know, forage, gather, and, you know, that's understood going into the conservatorship. Okay. So some people might feel more comfortable dealing with the conservancy as opposed to the actual tribe itself. And have you had um, a significant amount of, of lands donated, like what we're talking about today on the show? They have. I don't have the actual um, how much land they've actually taken into trust, but it's, there's several islands out in the middle of Mashpee Wakeby Lake, um, which is the heart of um, Mashpee Wampanoag uh, homelands, 
that they have been given into trust. There's several parcels in and around Mashpee. Um, and that, then most recently there was, uh, I believe, 34 acres in the Kingston area. The interesting thing about the land, Native Land Conservancy is that it's, it's not just representative of Mashpee tribal members that serve on the board. It's actually a collective group of um, directors that participate. Uh, there's members of the Aquina uh, Wampanoag tribe uh, from Martha's Vineyard, a uh, sister tribe within the Wampanoag Nation, and also uh, representatives from the Herring Pond Wampanoag, a state-recognized group, um, uh, you know, sister tribe of the, within the nation as well. So, you know, it, it reflects people from um, various tribal communities. Um, there's even a board of director from the Nipmuc state-recognized tribe, um, that um, works okay. as a direct border, board, serves on the board of directors also. David, are there any, I'm just interested, are there any non-native uh, board members on the Conservancy as well? So the way the articles of organization were created that uh, you have to be a tribal enrolled tribal member to serve on the board, but they do have other support uh, team um players that uh, participate that are non-native. Um, Mark Robinson is the person that leads a um, non-native uh, conservation group on, on the Cape. And then there's also Chris Clark that serves as the Bonstable County um, Land Conservancy. Um, so those okay. two people have been critical, uh, very significant in helping draft documents and kind of uh, better understand uh, conservership programs. So the, the Mashpee Wampanoag, you folks have two main blocks of trust land there in, in Mashpee, and then also um, there, there was the land in Taunton that, that's um, been the subject of, of some pretty high-profile legal suits in, in recent years. Um, but that land is separate from this land that's held by the Native Land Conservancy. But I'm interested in terms of what is the overall long-term vision or goal uh, for the land that's held within the conservancy as opposed to, to the other land that's held, um, held in trust and um, on behalf of the tribe? And, um, and how do you folks go about kind of deciding or creating that vision for these two separate but, but similar, highly related um, native lands there that um, are, are there to benefit the Wampanoag community? So I guess uh, just as a point of clarity, it, 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 I have to say that, you know, the Native Land Conservancy is autonomous from the tribe. It's, it's a totally separate private organization, and there's not a lot of uh, internal coordination between the two. Um, they have uh, distinct missions and goals um, as distinctive groups. Uh, you know, the, the tribe is looking for uh, lands to further tribal government um, initiatives and programs, you know, housing, um, land interest for other governmental functions and economic development, um, you know, that type of thing where um, the Native Land Conservancy is looking to just conserve land that are, are, are healthy or return lands to their natural state to preserve uh, the wild environment and um, create spaces where we can forage and you know there's there's um, some of the gifts that the creators provided for us to sustain ourselves like blueberries and different fruits nuts berries uh, uh, fish and wildlife 
those things have a, a healthy environment to thrive upon, and that's the goals of the Native Land Conservancy, um, you know, okay. places to protect and do ceremony and things. So very different, a very different mission in terms of, of the other lands, which are more focused on economic development and other interests. But I'm curious to know, are there ever situations where the Native Land Conservancy could be in competition with the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe or uh, maybe both interested in, in, a per, in, a, in a certain piece of land, um, but having a different vision for how that land should be used going forward? I guess one could uh, look at it that way, but, you know, preserving and protecting land is an overarching goal of uh, all of the tribe. And so if we're able to do, do, do it through either of the two mechanisms, you know, taking land and feed a trust or, or through the tribe, um, it's, you know, it's good for the um, goals and missions of the tribe as, as a body and, and tribal government. But if that's going to, if that's not a viable option, then the Native Land Conservancy is kind of a, a supportive role that people may feel more comfortable in donating, donating their land to the Native Land Conservancy. And, you know, also, I believe most of the properties were allowed to hunt and fish on them, you know, um, uh, as well. So it's still a benefit in the end to uh, the preservation of lands uh, for, for, for the collective interests of the entirety of the tribe. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, Chris Stainbrook, I'd, I'd like to bring you back into the conversations. And um, are donations, I mean, is this kind of the wave of the future, given how bureaucratic it can be to secure trust land status in, in, in many Native communities? What's your thought, Chris? Well, I think there's... Um... There are just a myriad of situations, and it really depends on kind of the goals of the tribes overall. And I think you just heard a good description of how the two can work together um, to some extent. But it, but you have um, a tribal body, a government, that ultimately oversees the tribal land, and and yet the jurisdiction of the Conservancy land is still with the county and state, and and so you have this kind of bifurcation, if you will, of the land management regulations. Um, now, it's not to say, and I think I think the Mashpee are a good example of it, where uh, you've you've used both to some extent, um, but the solidification of the tribe is really based on that jurisdiction of the land. Mm -hmm. Chris, how secure are donated lands uh, when they're not placed into trust? Again, going back to some of these groups in California that, that don't want to have their, these lands held in trust. Right. And that's one of the issues of the whole thing is a 501c3. 501c3s go out of business on some regular basis. Um, can't get, you know, support for their management costs or other pieces. And then the question becomes, what happens to that land? Is is there a tribe able and willing to pick up that land? Do you have that kind of agreement of a right of first refusal um, in place with the, the 501c3? A good example of it is 
the Nature Conservancy and um, the Blackfeet Tribe, where the Nature Conservancy set up a, a conservation or conservancy, basically on reservation land, and there was no agreement to what would happen to that land if the conservancy and the sport dried up for it. Um, would that land then be available to the tribe, or would it go back on, in essence, the public auction block? Well, uh, David, I'd like to ask you. Um, you know, Chris, Chris, you know, says there. You know, there are some risks there in terms of of a, of a nonprofit entity um, owning land. So, is that something that's on your folks' radar as well as? Uh, a succession plan, a succession plan, and also sustainability. Because again, nonprofits, um, they don't necessarily have the longevity of a tribal nation. We've got about another minute before we have to wrap up the show, David, but if you could respond, have the last word, I'd sure appreciate it. You know, I, I think he, Chris brings up a very good point that I'm not sure that uh, the Native Land Conservancy is a very young organization, so I, I don't know if they've looked at that um, you know, because of the points he's raised, you know, I will go back and talk to the Native Land Conservancy and try to see if something like that can be developed um, so that we have the foresight to in anticipate that kind of scenario. You know, I, I, I really can't speak to if that exists or not presently. Um, you know, and, and the tribe, we often go after trying to go after more land, but a lot of time, you know, the tribe lacks the resources to actually purchase, you know, feed to trust lands. Uh, so, he, you know, he, he's spot on with the two different um, commissions and goals and the challenges with those. Um, We're going to have to, to wrap up the show now. I'd like to thank our guest today, Hillary Rennick, Chris Stainbrook, David Whedon, and Wallace Cleaves for a timely discussion about land donations to tribes and native-led organizations. Join us tomorrow for a preview of the new sci-fi film, Slashback. The story takes place in an Arctic village where a group of indigenous teens battle a mysterious extraterrestrial invader. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Stay safe. Close to half of American adults have high blood pressure. Of those, about 75% don't have it controlled. Singer, songwriter, and actor Natori Naughton is teaming up with the support of the American Heart Association to raise awareness of high blood pressure. You can join us in the Get Down With Your Blood Pressure Dance Movement. It's inspired by the four simple steps to self-monitoring blood pressure. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Info about the dance at American underscore heart on Instagram. Ah, Kesuk Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, 
the Native American Radio Network.